Okay, so if you don't have, if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter two. And so we're entering into our, what we've, we've, we've called our summer psalm series. And so we each week, um, during July, we'll, we'll do a different psalm. And so there, uh, there's not a theme necessarily. We're just picking a psalm and, and, and sharing, um, from it. The psalms are one of the best places in the scripture to go, I think, not only to see, um, the character of God, but to see our own hearts, to see the issues that are dearest and closest to us because these are prayers, right? They're expressing, um, our hearts, oftentimes, they're expressing God, expressing God's heart to us, and we learn so much about Him, and we learn so much about ourselves through the Psalms. And so, since this is Independence Day weekend, Fourth of July weekend, um, I zoomed in on a on a Psalm that that um, has to do with this idea of of how God interacts with the nations. Okay, um, we talked a couple weeks ago about the word hermeneutic. Right. You remember that we talked about how hermeneutic is basically a method by which you read and interpret the scriptures. Right. So if if whatever that method is, the way you understand them is is your hermeneutic. Okay. Um, there is a hermeneutic that is not helpful, I think, um, that we see in the church a lot. And that is the idea, the tendency to read the scriptures in such a way that we treat America like it is Israel. Okay, so when God is speaking in the Bible to national Israel, to his people Israel, we read those passages as if he is talking to the United States, as if he's talking to America. Okay, Uh, I don't think that's helpful. Um, I don't think it's accurate to do that. Okay, Um, it would be more appropriate to say God is speaking now. We could read those passages talking to Israel, and it would be more appropriate to say that he is speaking to his church not to America, but even then there are some difficulties there because he's speaking specifically to national Israel in so many places, right? But when we do that, when we treat America like it is Israel um, and just sort of change the names, man, we get into a lot of trouble and we get into a lot of misunderstandings about what the Bible says. Now, having said that, I'll kind of shift gears a little bit. I believe that America is a particularly blessed nation. I really do. Um, I believe that America, I believe in American, what you hear this term get thrown around a lot, American exceptionalism. Okay. I believe in American exceptionalism, that exceptionalism, as long as you define it rightly. Okay. As long as you define what that means. Okay. I'm not saying that America is unique necessarily in its freedoms, right? There are lots of freedoms that we have that lots of other nations now have too. Um, I'm not saying that we're the best at everything. That's not what I mean by exceptional. I'm not saying that we are the only ones or the best at everything like that. That's not what I mean by it. Um, I'm not saying that America doesn't have a checkered past, right, in terms of abuses and sins um, that they have committed, right? But what it is to say is this, to recognize that the American experiment was the first of its kind, right? It was a unique kind of nation, Uniquely, I think, again, blessed and used by God in the history of the world. And the question that maybe should pop up is, well, why? Why is that the case? Why has America been blessed and and uniquely used in, in the world? And I think the reason is this, is because it was a model for other nations in terms of a picture of liberty and freedom that rested on the foundations of a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, right? Men came and had a Christian understanding of the way the universe worked, 
and they tried their best to form a government based on that, okay? Certainly with massive inconsistencies, certainly with massive failures along the way, certainly with massive hypocrisies along the way. And yet at its foundation, there was a unique idea there. Right. And so we cannot make the mistake of treating America as if it is biblical Israel because it isn't. Right. But then at the same time, the Bible has a lot to say to nations. Right. Any nation, our nation, all nations about how they're supposed to interact with God. Okay. And I think in some ways, America had been a model of that, right? In, in some ways, again, messing up lots. And, and obviously we're going to talk about that because this, the occasion for this Psalm is addressing that very thing. It's asking a question about how the nations, the, all the nations of the world, all the nations throughout time have engaged with God. And interestingly, it starts from a negative standpoint. It starts from a negative situation. It begins with the nations rebelling against God and his word. So watch how the psalmist begins. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, that's how the passage starts, right? So what is it telling us? It's saying the typical activity of the nations, right? The typical way they go about business is not neutral. As God looks down from heaven, he describes the nation's activity with two basic characteristics. Number one, they rage and set themselves against God. And two, they plot and take up counsel together against God. Okay, that's the way the nations work. Okay, so again, the first thing we notice is, man, those aren't passive characteristics, right? That is not the situation where their rebellion against God is just kind of accidental. They didn't just fall into it. It's not just that they didn't know any better, right? Raging and plotting are intentional. The nations stand in opposition to God and his anointed. Okay, when we say anointed, who are we talking about? Well, in in sort of the psalmic text, I mean, standpoint, right? We're thinking of David and David's um, ordained anointed rule, but ultimately we're talking about Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of David's line, right? And he's the ultimate anointed one. He's the ultimate chosen one. He is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And so the nations are not only standing opposed to God, but they're standing opposed to Jesus. Why? Because that's what nations do, man. That's what nations end up doing. That's their default position. It is typical in a fallen world for nations to stand, not in submission to God, but in opposition to God's word and into and, and, and God's command, right? I would argue that's one of the geniuses of the American style of government, is that the American style of government admitted that fact. It recognized that, Power left to itself is always going to tend towards evil or opposition to God. And so as a way to try to curtail that, what do they do? They put these three branches of government in there to at least try to have some kind of check and balance so that the nations couldn't just go on their way and do whatever they wanted because that they're intrinsically, I mean, it's weird to say because obviously I just said, I think God has used our government, but governments are in a way intrinsically bad. Right? They always tend towards being power hungry and controlling and domineering. 
And so that's one of the brilliances of, of our system of government. Somebody quipped, and I can't remember if it's Mark Twain or whoever or Churchill, but it was basically the idea that democracy is the worst kind of government in the world, except for all the other ones, right? That was his famous line, right? Is that recognizing that, man, there's no perfect system. In fact, most of the systems are always going to be bad, but democracy is the least bad one of all of them, right? It's how nations act. It's just, it's what they've always done. Um, Lord Acton, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because when that power, when anybody gets power and it begins to coalesce around a king or a tyrant or even a governmental system, a, de- a democratic system, they begin to see themselves as the rightful ultimate authority. That's just what power does. That's just what governments do. And what happens? Why do they do that? Why is that their attitude? It's because of what we see in verse 3. What is the government, what are the nations saying back to God? They are saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The world sees God and his rules and his, and, and his commandments as a burden, right? As a hindrance. God is a straitjacket to the nations. God is holding back their power and their authority. And so they're not going to be bound by anything. They're they're not going to be controlled by anyone. They say, man, we're not going to let your character, God, or your rules or your plans stop us from doing what we want to do. And so what do they do? They rage against God and they plot against God. That's a bold move on the nation's part, right? Okay. It's a bold move to, to stand up in opposition to the God of the universe. And so what do we see? Do we see, do you think God is concerned? Right? Is he concerned about this? Is he nervous about this? Is God sitting up in heaven worrying about the, the nations getting together and plotting against him? How does he respond to this coup that is going on on earth among the kings of the earth? Well, verse 4, what it says, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Okay, here's the deal. I want you to notice the language. Okay, I want you to see the way the Bible talks about God's character. Okay, because it informs us about what God is like. Okay, God laughs at the nation's arrogance. Their posturing is ridiculous to him. He holds them in derision. Derision is not even a word that we use anymore. Probably half of us don't know what derision means. It means contemptuous ridicule, mockery, scorn. It is looking at something as if it is worthless and despicable. Okay, That's the way the Bible says God looks at the rebellion of the nations. Okay, That's how he thinks about them. Mockery and derision. The nations of the world who rebel against him, you could say they're a joke to him, okay? But not like a ha-ha joke, right? Not like like I'm funny to you kind of joke, right? Because God isn't laughing. What does it say in verse 5 is the outcome of this, the consequence of this? It says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, okay? He will speak to them in wrath and fury. That is God's response to the rebellious nation. Yeah, but Ash, what about God's forgiveness, right? What about God's patience and God's mercy and all these things like that, right? Those things are true too, right? That's the gospel. 
That's the good news of God's forgiveness and mercy to us. And God has provided an ark from the flood, right? That ark is Jesus Christ. There is something that we can flee to to get away from the flood, but the flood's coming, okay? The flood's still coming. Jesus coming into the world does not keep the flood from coming. keeps the flood from coming into the believer's life, right? That flood that's going to come is not going to touch those who are in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it says there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. But for the rest of the world, it's coming. For the nations that have rebelled against God, it's coming. Why is God's wrath kindled like that? Because these earthly kings are setting up their own little kingdoms, right? They're setting up their own little fiefdoms. God has already chosen a king for the world, though. There's already a king. He's already chosen an exalted person, his anointed one, his king of kings, his lord of lords, his sovereign above all. That's what it says in verse 6, right? God speaks down and he says, as for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's Jerusalem, right? That's the picture of the center of the universe and, and the, and the throne room of God, essentially, right? And, and God says, I've already set up my king of the world. He's there in Jerusalem, in Zion. He is Jesus. And then Jesus comes back in verse seven talking. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, what did God say to his anointed? You are my son. Today I have begotten you, right? We know that language, right? We just read it in the Nicene Creed, right? That Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Do you remember the story of Solomon in the Old Testament, of Solomon's coronation? Okay. Solomon is the son of King David. David's getting old. He's about to have to decide who is the new king. And Sol- David has a son. Solomon has a brother whose name is Adonijah. Adonijah wanted to be king. He's a good-looking dude. He was next in line. He seemed to be of a kingly type, right? And so he started to secure a following for himself. And he started to go around to the people in David's kingdom and say, hey, man, when, when my father's gone, you want to be on my side? You want to support me as king? And he started getting all his people together. In fact, one day he decided he was going to get all his friends together who were supporting him and have a little, I just can't wait to be king party, right? And while they're having the party, everybody out in the streets starts celebrating and cheering and trumpets are blowing and things like that. And everybody's like, man, what's going on? Why is everybody celebrating? And the word comes down to Adonijah. Oh, David has just made Solomon the official king. And now your little party is actually an act of treason and sedition against the crown, right? And of course, everybody disperses and gets out of there. Everybody takes off. But that's exactly what's going on here, right? There are these kings all over the world, the kings of the nations who are running their little parties and their little uh, their little worlds, right? And they're saying, I'm going to set myself up as the new ruler, the great leader of this nation or the great leader in the world and great leader in history. And God says, but I've already anointed a king. There's already a king. And I've already said that I'm going to give him everything. The nations are his. The world is his. Everybody else is just imposters. Everybody else is usurpers. Right, And Jesus isn't just like any other king, because who is he? He's the son. He's the begotten son. He's not a vassal. 
He's not a steward of these things, right? He is an heir of God. He is the heir of God, and he will inherit all of these things. The nations, the entire world is his possession. And so all these little rulers who are popping up trying to start their own little worlds, right, they are living and fighting and rebelling on borrowed land, right? Okay, some of you guys have probably heard of the the state of Chaz. Has anybody heard of the state of Chaz? Are you aware of what the state of Chaz is, right? So in Seattle, um, there was this uh, group during the protest that sort of cordoned off this area in downtown um, uh, Seattle, and, and they called it Chaz because it stood for Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, right? And so what it was is it was... It was what it really was is it was sort of like the same thing that happened a few years back with the Occupy Wall Street phenomenon and stuff like that. A lot of people said it was sort of almost like a block party, like people were just there and, and congregating and, and having a good time. But the rhetoric around it got pretty elevated, right? Some of you probably have seen this on the news, right? The idea that Chaz, these six blocks of downtown Seattle, were now their own nation. Right. Um, and they could make their own laws and they were free from American uh, law and government and politics and policing and all these things like that. They were a new country that had just decided to exist right in the middle of Seattle. Right. And it's already kind of fallen apart or whatever. Um, but anybody who recognized anybody who looked at it during the phenomenon knew that it was an absurdity. Right. They knew that this was not going to last. Right. There wasn't going to be a situation in which Chaz just got to sit there like Vatican City or something for, for the rest of history and be its own little entity. Um, you can't start a nation within the bounds of another nation without that nation consenting to it and giving their approval to it, right? But there was that that A in Chaz, right, the autonomy, right, the idea that they were able to do whatever they wanted to and live by their own standards, that autonomy was a fiction from the start, right, as a pipe dream. It's a nice line, but it didn't mean anything, okay? So here's what I want you to realize, though, okay? America is Chaz. Russia is Chaz. India is Chaz. Great Britain is Chaz. The Ottomans, the Huns, the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, Sargon, Nimrod, everybody who has ever lifted themselves up and said, I am the king, I rule this land, this is mine, uh, I am the master of all that I see. It's all nonsense. It's pretension. It's absurdity. The Lord looks down and laughs in derision at all of it. Because that's what we're doing, right? We're doing the same thing that Chaz does. Most of us probably looked at Chad and thought, this is stupid, right? But the truth is, we do this in our own lives every single day, right? And nations do this every single day. We set up our own little autonomous zones. We make it like we can live by our own rules within our own lives and in our own hearts. But the reality is this, and this is Jesus' land, right? This belongs to Jesus. He owns all of this. And the scary thing is this. He tells us that one of these days, the hammer's going to drop. That one of these days... God is going to be done with, with, um, he's not going to be patient anymore with these nations and a hammer is going to come down. What does it say in verse nine? You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
That doesn't sound pleasant, right? I, I don't want that to happen. Uh, I don't want to be shattered with a rod of iron. I don't want to be broken into pieces. A violent and total destruction is what is coming for the rebellious who stand against God. Well, what should we do then, right? What's the answer to that? What's the answer for the human heart? What's the answer for the nations of the world? How should they go about living? How should What should they do? Well, it's interesting. Verse 10, we're told. In fact, there's even a nice little intro line. Hey, nations, be warned, be wise. That's what the, the psalmist tells us. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Okay, he's saying, I'm giving you a warning. I'm telling you how to get out of this thing, how to be wise, how to not be on the wrong side of the hammer when it comes down. What does it say in verse 11? First off, serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with fear. Man, service is always a function of humility, right? It is considering someone else as more important than yourself, okay? of setting your mind and your heart and your actions towards another person. Except in this case, the person is God, right? To look to God and say, it's not about my will, God. It's about your will, what you want, what you've called me to, what you've commanded. Those are the things that I want my life to be about, not about my own stuff, okay? And notice the language again. It says, serve the Lord with fear. Fear, is that reverence? Sure it is. But man, but it is also a recognition of the power and the severity of God. We cannot continue to look at God and, and just like to act like he's our, he's our kindly old granddad who would never do anything, um, to make us mad or to hurt us or anything like that, right? God is someone who we have to serve in reverent awe and fear, right? I always go back to C.S. Lewis, but it's just like the beavers in, in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Is this God that we're talking about safe? No, he's not safe. Nobody said anything about safe. He's certainly not safe, but he is good. But he's dangerous too, right? He is a God to be feared. But guess what? It's not just that. He doesn't just leave it at serving in fear because, again, that would get make most of us, it's the kind of thing that we go, man, I don't want a, a, a tyrant for a God, right? That's not what we're talking about because look at the next line. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, right? We are to rejoice, reverent fear mixed with joy, mixed with rejoicing. That's the heart of our problem, right? We don't enjoy God. We don't like the things that he has told us to. We're just like those kings in verse 3, man. We want to be free of these chains of God. We want God to get his hands off of us. Stop the restriction. Stop the repression, man. They stand in opposition to being... Um, they stand in opposition to what God would have for us, right? Those kings are, are just like my own heart. They're doing the same thing, man. I don't want I don't want God to hinder me in any way. But that's because I don't rejoice in God, right? I don't see the things that he has called me to as good because if I did, then there would be, it would be easy. I would just rejoice in God because I would know that he was good and what he wanted for me was best. And then finally, what do we do? Because man, it would, it would still be very, it would seem very almost legalistic at that point, moralistic, you could say, if we're just supposed to uh, serve and fear God and rejoice with God, that would be, that would be 
the end of it, right? But then the next line is so important. It says we are to kiss the sun. We have to acknowledge and receive the sun, right? We can't just try to do our best in fear and reverence and rejoicing. We have to enter into relationship with the sun. Acknowledging, honor, acceptance, friendship, love. Again, that, that, that language is a little weird to some. I think it feels especially maybe weird to guys when it's like, yeah, to kiss the sun. Um, but that kiss is like the kiss of, of a kneeling subject on the ring of his sovereign, right? It is the kiss of a person who has finally been united with a friend, their best friend that they have not seen in, in years, right? It's the kiss of a child to a parent who protects and provides for them, right? It is the kiss of a bride whose desire is to be in the embrace and the gaze of her beloved, right? All those, all those metaphors are our relationship to Jesus Christ. Like we look to him and we desire to be with him and in relationship with him and to love him and know him and to be loved by him. So it's not only obedience and reverence that God desires from us, right? It's love and intimacy and relationship in and through and with his son, Jesus Christ. Those things are the keys to blessing. In fact, that's exactly what it says to us at the end of verse 12. What does it say? It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Are you scared of that language of, of the judgment coming to the nations that rage? Are you scared of that language of this, this uh, iron rod and the broken um, pieces of pottery, right? Does that scare you? Well, the answer is happy. Blessed are the people who take refuge in God. You can hide from the judgment of God. You can flee from it. You can go to a safe place, and that place is in the Son. In the Son, Jesus Christ who has made a way for you to be protected from the wrath to come because he has borne that punishment already in his own body, in his own flesh, as he died for us on the cross. And so all these things kind of come together, right? Service, fear, rejoicing, relationship, both for the nations and for the individual soul. Psalm 33 that we read earlier and, and the words resound, especially on this, on this, uh, Independence Day weekend, but in light of this text, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we recognize, um, we acknowledge to you that all of us are in this exact situation. God, we have all rebelled. We have all turned against you. We have all lived our lives as if we were seeking our autonomy, that we could live our lives as we see fit, that we could do whatever we wanted to do. God, and we, we acknowledge, um, that, that your judgment is coming. Your judgment upon that is just, God, that your king, Jesus, is already ruling and reigning, that he has always been ruling and reigning, God, that he sits over all of this, God, and that our rebellion is not just a generic kind of idea of us doing our own thing, God, but it is a rebellion against you and your son um, as king. Father, we confess this. We confess our own rebellion, our own autonomy. God, we pray for not only our own hearts, that you would continue to draw us um, and sanctify us and make us um, like Jesus Christ and 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 turn us towards him. God, we pray that as, as 
um, those who are already followers of Jesus Christ, um, those who have trusted in him. God, we pray for those who are not, who have not, that they would flee to Jesus Christ, that they would escape the wrath to come by giving their lives to Jesus Christ and by turning over the authority of their lives to Jesus Christ. God, we pray for our nation um, in light of these things. God, we pray that our nation would not be a nation that seeks to run itself by its own rules, God, but that its foundation, that it would understand um, who you are and and who you have called us to be in terms of our humanity, God, and how you have um, told us to go about justice and goodness, God, and, and kindness uh, and neighborliness, um, God, honesty and truth, in all aspects of our of our civic lives, um, Father, we pray that you would turn our country back to you, um, that you would turn the hearts and lives and values of the people of this country back to you, and that we would live in a way that honors you, God. That you would bless our nation because of those things, and that you would continue um, to to grow your church here and draw people into your kingdom. God, we pray these things. We ask you in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song.
shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Amen. Good to see you guys tonight. I'm glad you got to come out and join us. Um, Here this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.